I think the best part about what we're doing is we're getting the opportunity to have a brand go find maybe 50 of their top fans in any city of the world and to host a local event around that or to identify them and give them free product or even just to reach out and say thank you. You're listening to Create Community, and I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Swish Goswami. Swish is the CEO and founder of TrueFan, a social intelligent platform that helps brands activate grassroots communities made up of super fans. Swish is a top LinkedIn creator with over 100 million content views. He's an expert at turning his online following into a true community. Swish is one of the most successful yet humble entrepreneurs I'm proud to know. In this episode, we talk about creating his community, his entrepreneurial journey, building a magnetic personal brand, and everything in between. Let's jump right into it. Swish, thank you so much for joining me on the Create Community Podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. So we met a couple of years ago when you spoke at a Fuck Up Nights event and you shared some of your uh, fuck ups throughout building your company and your professional career. I'm super excited to chat with you today about the community side of things. So to jump into it, let's chat about your upbringing and childhood. What was that like? Where did you grow up and what were those early years like for you? Um, my childhood was really within Singapore and Calgary. So Singapore is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. I loved growing up there, part of an Asian education system. So things are a lot more accelerated. Whatever I was learning in grade two, I was learning in grade six here. So when I came to Calgary, there was a lot of time for me not to spend on school, but to spend like outside of school, dancing, debating, playing basketball, playing cricket. That's all I did really. And allowed me to be really curious and think about a lot of things. Were your parents really encouraging of that or your family? At that that age, 100%. I think my dad was really trying to push me into engineering from a really young age. Like he wanted me to learn about, all right, how do you build something from scratch? How do you think about any task in terms of like a project and laying it out from start A to point B, right? So I think my dad was definitely pushing me into one direction. My mom, though, was super chill. She knew that no matter what happened, wherever I put my mind on something, it'll happen and I'll get it done. And so she just saw that I was more creative than my brother. And she let me have that creative freedom to do whatever I wanted. Like she literally used to drive me from like cricket practice to dance rehearsals and then back home, cook me dinner, wake me up in the morning. And she worked a full time job as well. So I just can't believe how like she managed everything there. Your mom seems like she's your biggest fan and such an amazing supporter and like such a good friend to you. I'm her biggest fan. (laughs) I don't know about the other way around, but... (laughs) I love that. That's so sweet. So what did you end up studying in university? It wasn't engineering, was it? I took two years doing peace, conflict, and justice studies and uh, ethics, society, and law, which is actually, I found out if you combine those degrees, which is what I was trying to do, it's the longest named degree that you can get at U of T. But basically what it boils down to is modern philosophy and conflict resolution. And I was taking that because A, PCJ, the program that I really liked was out of the Monk School of Global Affairs. The class sizes were like 25 people and not 3,000 people like I had in my first year. And on top of that, I am interested in politics. So that's why I decided to take that. And I know that growing up and throughout university, you've always been really entrepreneurial. You've had various side hustles and businesses that you were working on. What did some of those look like and how did you get into them? And how did that ultimately kind of shape your education and your decision to to drop out (laughs) of university? To take a leave of absence, like I told my mom and 
lie to her. But at the same time, <laughs> um, when I was when I was about ten years old, my dad trying to get me more into engineering um, kind of gave me my first entrepreneurial lesson, where we built a hovercraft over the span of like four or five months. I was able to sell a rechargeable and remote controlled hovercraft to my classmate, and that was great. Like I didn't learn to be an entrepreneur at all from that. If anything, my dad actually basically built the hovercraft, and I was watching, being like, "Cool, cool, cool, let's test it." Um, but it was just really cool to be able to see, like, all right, you can take something from nothing, make it into something of value, and then make money off it. Um, when I was 16, I joined a program called Junior Achievement, which is known mainly in Canada to help high school students with entrepreneurial. I did Junior Achievement too. I Amazing. did their company program. Yep. I love it. It was that was such a great experience. Great experience. And and so we built a custom lapel pins company. We did pretty well. We won Southwest Alberta's Company of the Year, nominated for Candid's Company of the Year, and that was another indication to my parents, like, oh, maybe this path of like lawyer, engineer, doctor is not for him. But I still wanted to be a lawyer, despite being very entrepreneurial as a kid and starting a nonprofit in high school. Like when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. But then it was kind of in first and second year where things really took off. Started wearables company in first year, moved to New York after we licensed it out and then started working at a VC there and eventually met a roommate of mine who just basically convinced me to drop out, to go on this crazy journey of building out a media company and then eventually Truefin. What was that experience like, kind of like telling your friends, your classmates that you're dropping out? How did your community <laughs> feel about yeah. you doing that? I think they already thought I dropped out because honestly, in <laughs> second year, there. I only went to like five classes and four of those five, I think, were in orientation week. So it wasn't like, you know, I was very engaged in school and they were like, whoa, this is a total 180. Like what's happening? If anything, my brother was actually the biggest supporter of me leaving school. Um, my brother right now, is clerking for the Supreme Court. He is a genius. He's a lawyer. He he will probably become the youngest judge in Ontario history one day. I'm calling it right now. Um, <laughs> it's an impressive family. Yeah, he's amazing. He's like an actual genius. But he was the one who kind of told me like, look, I think you're more creative than I am. Growing up, you hated reading and 80% of being a lawyer is literally reading. It's not going to trial all the time. So I think you should consider taking this opportunity and then running with it and seeing what happens, right? And the way he broke it down is really smart, which is it's a win-win. If it doesn't work out, come back to school and continue your third year, yeah. which I can easily do at U of T. Um, so yeah. So that's great. It's always good to have options, but I don't see you going back to school. No, not yeah. yet. I mean, I've not heard yet, the yeah. Canadian government offers free education past the age of 55. So I might exploit Maybe that when then. I'm like 56, 57, <laughs> go back to school. Well, that's good to know. Maybe I'll do that yeah. too. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, I think one of the really unique things about you as a community builder is that you have such a strong online community, but you've also dabbled in in-person, offline community as well. So I want to spend some time chatting about your LinkedIn community. It's super impressive. You have close to 78,000 followers on LinkedIn. How did you amass such a large online community? Yeah, it happened not overnight for sure. It's a span of like me literally writing and posting on a regular basis for about four years now. So when I was posting on LinkedIn, I was one of the only students that was talking about things that students face. Yeah. Procrastination, you know, being able to not figure out what my passion is, eating ramen all day, like trying to look for a job, getting rejected for interviews, mental health, talking about things that students could relate to. I got into the campus editor program, which really helped as well to be able to spread my reach and start collaborating with other campus editors on videos and articles. And that's honestly how I started with LinkedIn. In my first month, I remember having a viral post that I think hit 750,000 views or something. And I started realizing like, whoa, there's like a massive white space. No one's talking about LinkedIn. If I constantly just share stuff, A, about you know the reality of entrepreneurship, which is what I mainly post about now, or inspiring stories that can uplift people during moments of like sadness for them, 
that can definitely help me in terms of building a community out where I can talk to them and really meet them. But that second part, by the way, is really important because a lot of people, they, they just think it's all about sharing content. More about me, I think, is my USP's engagement. Like I literally try to engage with every single comment I get. Even if I get like 50,000 comments, I will literally like stay up till 4 a.m. just replying to people. It's, and it's so important. It's, yeah, it's yeah. important, but it's also important, I think, because you want people who are commenting, who are spending time on your post to feel like there's another human being on the other side. For sure. That's such a big thing because there's, I mean, there's a lot of influencers on LinkedIn, on other social platforms, and not everybody takes the time to kind of actually engage back with their community. And that's what really sets you apart. I think something that's really unique as well is that I think you were really like one of the first movers to kind of start putting out that kind of content on LinkedIn. When you sort of started putting out that content about your experience as a student, mental health, entrepreneurship, the majority of people still kind of saw LinkedIn as this like super professional (laughs) place. Like you throw your resume up there, you look for a job and that's about it. So I think you were really kind of early on and sort of leading that charge and and LinkedIn in general. I mean, for me, I found that to be such a key platform for building out fuck up nights. I think so much of our traffic comes from there. Um, A lot of my speakers come directly from there. So much of the community that's been built for people engaging with our posts online on LinkedIn, watching our videos, um, seeing some key summaries from the talks that we have, and then wanting to actually come out and experience that community in person. It's such an amazing and cool thing to kind of see unfold. So what was your experience like as a youth editor? And was it that that sort of translated into creating LinkedIn local or was that two sort of separate things? That was two separate. Definitely being a youth editor meant that I was able to meet pretty much every young person that was putting out content on LinkedIn because they were all going through the campus editor program. So the youth editor position was kind of designated to me after one year of being a campus editor. Uh, And my job was literally just to encourage students to write on LinkedIn, encouraging them to join the campus editor program or to think about, hey, should I interview people and have an interview series like I did on LinkedIn? Um, LinkedIn Local was started in New York for me. Obviously, you know, there's three other co-founders that came on board and one of them, Anna, started a meetup, I think, in Sydney about a month or two before I did in New York. But the reason why I created my meetup in New York initially was because all my friends were like YouTubers and Instagrammers that had a community and they were doing meetups. And I was like, hey, I'm, a, I'm about like 25,000 followers. Like, could be neat if I just put out something, hey, meet me at Washington Square Park. And, you know, 13 people came. It was a rainy day as well. And we went to Starbucks and that was the first LinkedIn local experience for me. Yeah, That's so awesome. And then obviously that evolved. And I know you started doing more of those in Toronto. What has that community been like? Have you seen kind of more connections foster through that? People connecting outside of those events, um, engaging online as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it started off, I think we had initially 40 people. The most we've had, I think it's like close to 100 people at an event. And it's great because there's also regular people that come out to pretty much every LinkedIn local. And it's neat because when you talk to them, they're like, hey, you know, I was able to like get a job lead from this event. I was able to think about a topic in a very different way. It's really cool because all the speakers that come out for LinkedIn Local, they're very interactive. They're not just like at a conference where they speak, get up and leave. They'll actually go and chill with you and like just be a normal person in front of you after that you can talk to and have a conversation with. So I think it's one of the most authentic events out there. Same thing with Fuck Up Nights. And it's like in terms of the community being created, really similar. Like we hear of people finding uh, their next job, like finding their next co-founder at an event about fucking up. It's pretty great. And it's so 
rewarding to see that as like the community builder that brought those people together to actually see people get that kind of value from it. Something else that I think is super interesting about what you've been doing on LinkedIn is that, like you said, you're not just about putting out content. You're really engaging with others and really highlighting others. And I love the series that you started, the Unconventional series, where like you have so much cool stuff that you're doing yourself. So many like speaking opportunities, you travel so much, you're building an amazing company, but you've taken the time to actually highlight other people in your network who are doing really cool things. You've had people like Mark Cuban on there, Jay Shetty, Lewis Howes, Damon John. How did you go about starting that series and what was sort of your goal behind it? Yeah, so I knew that, you know, the foundation for networking, in my opinion, is being able to provide value up front. Um, that's my trick when it comes to meeting people. It's a trick, I guess, quote unquote. But it's, it's more of like, hey, I think a lot of people that you want to talk to probably get so many requests for coffee. How do you stand out? Maybe interview them, tell a story for them, you know, spread whatever they're doing to your network. That's what I did. My first interview was actually with my mom. The next person that I got in was Lewis Howes and I just emailed him. And same thing with Mark Cuban. Like I just emailed him, markcuban at gmail.com. I was like, here are the questions. He replied being like, when do you need them by? I'm like, all right, next week would be great. I was kind of shocked he even replied. Maybe he was his assistant. I don't know. I got back a bunch of answers (laughs) and I took that copy, pasted and shared it. Right. So I personally think that whole lesson of creating an interview series also just taught me like the art of listening to no, but having the persistence to keep going and just keep moving. And that's really, really important, especially when it comes to even fundraising for a business. You're going to hear 90, 100 no's, but it all is really worth it when you hear like that one or two yeses. Yeah. Absolutely. I think like you said, it, it is sort of a trick to building anything, but especially building your network. Yeah. A lot of the time people are kind of shy to do that or they think they have to kind of have a big name behind yeah. them to be able to reach those types of people. But you really don't. You just have to be coming from a place that's really authentic. Yeah. It was the same thing for me. Like when I started Fuck Up Nights, nobody knew who I was. I actually, I started Fuck Up Nights Toronto while I was still living at home with my parents in Woodbridge <laughs> and commuting into the city. I love it. Um, but it's all about like authenticity and how you reach out and yeah just like creating value by actually highlighting other people's journeys and not making it about yourself I think that's something that really sets you apart as a community builder and it's such a humble and amazing thing to do as well are there any stories that specifically jump to mind from what you've built on LinkedIn is there kind of like I know with fuck up nights for example there's actually a couple that met at one of our events and there's like companies that have been started is there one that really stands out to you I think the let's get honest campaign that was great like we started that in my second year. So that would be two or three years ago. And me, a guy named Aaron Orndorff, Michaela Alexis and Josh Fector, we came together. We're like, look, why don't we just share something that we're, we feel vulnerable about, especially in the workplace. So we came together, we shared it uh, as a video. We used the hashtag, let's get honest. Uh, and it was just crazy. Like how many people started nominating their friends? They started sharing videos. I think the whole campaign in total got about 26 million impressions. And more than that, it was awesome because LinkedIn actually finally recognized user generated content. Like they've built a whole different tab for Let's Get Honest. So like you could click on that and you'd see all the Let's Get Honest videos. And that was really cool to see like, all right, cool. What can you take from Instagram or Facebook in terms of community generated content and how can you replicate it on LinkedIn in a way that people actually want to participate? That must have been so rewarding to sort of see it blow up like that. So 
shifting gears again, I really want to chat about TrueFan. So the company that you're building now, tell us a little bit more about what TrueFan is and what was the inspiration for you to start it? Yeah. So where it is now definitely was different from where we initially thought of it two years ago. Two years ago, we thought, why don't we just build an app that a brand or an influencer could use to reward their top fans. Where I think we've gone to now is more of an audience intelligence platform. So we're integrated with Instagram and Twitter. We allow any brand to come on board to run their followers and filter them. So slicing and dicing your followers and being able to get an audience that you want to directly target and engage with. But we also have a pretty sophisticated backend where if you don't even want to run your own account, you can gain access to over a billion profiles on Instagram, over a billion profiles on Twitter, and you can slice and dice that to be able to get an audience that you want. So I think what we built is pretty admirable in the sense that we are trying to have brands engage with their grassroots communities, which would be made up of super fans and micro-influencers. And we're really trying to get them to turn their back on paid advertising or influencer marketing in a really dumb way, which would be paying people with millions of followers that aren't even aligned with your brand. Yeah, like you said, you've had a few pivots in this business. What did it start out with? Like, what was the initial vision? And what were sort of like some of the key steps that that happened along the way to where it is today? I don't think it was pivots as much as the idea evolved. Um, because the initial aspect of rewarding your top fans still exists. It's just a use case now. It's not like the whole product. It's like one of four or five big use cases for the platform. But I think there were a number of things that happened throughout the way. One is we started to understand that, you know, rewarding your top fans is something that brands especially have a problem with. It's not just an influencer's app. Um, Brands have customer loyalty programs, but none of their loyalty programs tend to be based on social media data. And that's really important because most of your younger consumers, people between the age of 20 to 30, are likely going to be sharing about your product or service on social media. So if they're doing that positively, you should absolutely reward them. If they're doing it negatively, you should be responding to them. For sure. Um, So that was a really cool aspect that happened in our kind of first year is we realized that the app and the platform was supposed to be more about community management than just a rewards app. And then I think where we've gone now was very indicative of the acquisition we made three months ago with Social Rank, where we brought on another aspect of the platform, which was not just fan engagement, but audience search, being able to search for any audience in the world and then being able to go deep into understanding their engagement pattern. I love what you're doing in terms of the community building aspect of it. I think that's something that's so unique about your platform. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and sort of what your vision is for for the users of your platform to be able to use it to really like build a true community and not just kind of put out content for their fans? Yeah, I think the best part about what we're doing is we're getting the opportunity to have a brand go find maybe 50 of their top fans in any city of the world and to host a local event around that or to identify them and give them free product or even just to reach out and say thank you. And the impact of that is something I've actually felt. Foot Locker Canada hit me up, I think, the start of last year. And they were like, hey, we noticed you're a really interesting person. We'd love to give you these new Kit Cuddy shoes that are coming out. We'd love for you to post about it. But don't worry, you don't have to if you don't want to. And I'm like, yeah, I'll po- I love Kit yeah. Cuddy and I love shoes. So I'll post <laughs> about it. Of course, fit. perfect. Yeah. But it was amazing because that like one message that they sent to me, I screenshotted it and I sent it to like all my friends. And I'm even mentioning it on the podcast right now. And 
And that's literally, in my opinion, the impact of just giving a little shit about your fan base. Like even 1% can go such a way in terms of word of mouth marketing. So that's why I really like what we're doing. People just want to be heard and they want to be acknowledged. And not every brand does that. So I think anybody who uses your platform is really going to set themselves apart. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced so far <laughs> in building TrueFan? I know it's not easy, especially as a young entrepreneur. Yep. There's a, there's a lot. In our first year, I wrote an article about this called Beauty and Chaos on Medium. Three big issues we had were failed hires. Actually, I had to let two people go, one of whom was a very good friend of mine. The second would be product delays. We wanted to get the MVP of our product out in March of 2018. We got the first version out in November of 2018. Oh, so way later than we <laughs> thought we'd get it out. And then we also actually got sued. Uh, in our in our first year, we got a trademark violation, um, which isn't getting sued, I guess. It's more of a cease and this letter, but we apparently had copied the name of another company in California. So we had to change our name from Superfan to something else. We came up with a bunch of names. I remember Cerebro was there because I'm a big X-Men fan and Professor X used Cerebro to find the other mutants, whatever, blood nerd moment. And then there was also Spike, which I hated. Komodo, because Onyx's favorite animal apparently is a Komodo dragon, which I thought was pretty <laughs> weird. So um, and, then, and then my mom was actually the one who was like, hey, what about True Fan? And she actually had an E though in the middle. So I took the E out, put the name together, and then took credit for the name. Um, but yeah, that was, that was one of the biggest challenges I think we faced in our first year with those three things. And then right now we're still facing issues. We have issues around our business model, issues around automation in terms of making our sales process quicker. So it's not like we're out of the woods yet. There's a yeah. lot more to still be. I mean, to, that's to be I think that's the life of an entrepreneur. I think if you're not fucking up or if you're not dealing with some kind of adversity, you're probably almost like failing by default. Like if things are just going too smoothly, you're probably not innovating enough or not yeah, risking moving, enough. Or moving so, quickly, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Or just like playing it too safe. Yeah, so. exactly. So it's like good thing for sure as long as you kind of learn from manage them it. and manage it move forward yeah. always kind of yeah. have that growth mindset around it yeah How do you sort of get through those challenges and like, what's your community like? Are there a lot of entrepreneurs sort of in your network that kind of help mentor you yep. and help support you as well? Great question. So we have nine advisors at TrueFan. We also have 27 investors. So we have a pretty deep roster of people that I think I can go to for help if I need it. Beyond that, we have a very capable team that I think we've built out. So if it's an issue related to marketing or if it's an issue related to sales, I have people that I can call upon that I know are experts in this field and they will rise to the occasion and normally get it done. And then I think third and finally, I, I do have a community of entrepreneurs that I play basketball with on a weekly basis. Uh, every Sunday we play and it's a bunch of entrepreneurs and creatives that come out. And the cool thing is, yeah, we're playing basketball, but you know, after the game, before the game, during warmups, we're talking about work and we're talking about things that are affecting us both positive and negative. Uh, and it's cool to be able to even relate. Even if I'm not getting my issues solved, it's good to be able to be like, I'm not alone in this. There are other people that are going through similar challenges and I'm going to get over it. That's such a fantastic idea. I love that because a lot of the time it's like people kind of do that in like a mastermind format and, you know, they're sitting around the table and it's like it's a little bit more formal. <laughs> you're just that. like you're, you're killing two birds with one stone. And you're getting your exercise. Endorphins <laughs> are going. And yep. that's amazing. That's uh, like I think that like a lot of our listeners, that's something maybe to apply to, to yourself. Totally. That's such a fantastic idea. Totally. So before we chat more about your personal community, I wanted to get your advice for other community builders. I think you really bring that unique lens 
lens of having an online and offline community. What advice do you have to somebody who's kind of trying to decide which of those to focus on or to start with? Do you think it's important to have both? I think it's important to have both. I think your offline community is going to keep you grounded. It's going to keep you real, especially if you focus only on online. It's very easy for your mental health to either deteriorate or to very much get inflated. So I would stay away from only having one of them. That being said, though, I think the two biggest things would be A, consistency. You can't focus on building a community for one day and then call it quits for a month and then come back and be like, where did the community go? Yeah, right. It's something sure. you kind of have to yeah. do day in and day out. And you have to treat other community members like human beings, meaning there are going to be days where community members are not going to be attentive. They're not going to be commenting or liking on your post. They're not going to be coming out to your meetup, but you have to move on and you have to try as much as possible to help them out, but also give them their space because that's something I learned is, you know, if there was a hundred people that came out to your last event, there might not be a hundred people that come out to the next one. You got to be totally fine simply putting that event on and moving on. Exactly. And I think also such a key thing is listening to your community, like you said, especially with in-person events, like something that we do with Fuck Up Night as we do a feedback survey after each one. And right. we've gotten some really great feedback from it that we've implemented for future events. Mm-hmm. It's, it's helped us in terms of choosing speakers to even like the types of beverages and food that we yeah. provide. Yeah. So it's such a key thing and just like showing people that you're listening and always engaging back. But I, I like what you said, like it's hard to choose which one to focus on and they go so hand in hand. Do you think it's a little bit more accessible to people to start online and then turn it into an offline community or does it matter? I think you could do both. The way I did it was more, I think I built my online presence first and then I took it offline and I really loved it. So I kept going with the offline approach despite still putting out content online, but you can go vice versa or you can only do one of them. But again, there is a danger in my opinion to that. I would try to do both if possible. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It was sort of like the same thing with Fuck Up Nights. I launched it as an in-person event, but then as soon as that kind of resonated and took off, I really started to focus on my own personal brand and community online, but also like specifically for fuck up nights, like really making sure that there's avenues for people to engage with us online. And it really makes it so much stronger kind of coming at it from both angles. So shifting gears again to your personal community, you've lived in various parts of the world, going from Singapore to Canada to New York. And now it's so amazing that you've chosen Toronto as your home base and the place to build your company. What was that experience like coming back to Toronto from New York specifically? Mm -hmm. Like, I love New York. Mm -hmm. I know that must have been a difficult transition. Not really. I love New York, but I hated living in New York. I think it was too polluted, too messy. I can see Um, that, yeah. Americans weren't as nice as Canadians. (laughs) I love visiting New York. I love visiting, yeah. But I think living there kind of made every small problem in New York way bigger in my mind. So it was nice to get out of there. I was actually in Vancouver before I even came to Toronto. I was in Vancouver for eight months. So it was really cool to be able to go from like one side of the country to the other to notice like the differences in work style and, you know, how my mental health was, how my network was. Was I happy? Was I not? Was I productive? Was I not? So I chose Toronto mainly because I feel like this is the best place to create a business right now in North America. I think there's major opportunity here. I think there's a lot of capital here. I think that the people and the entrepreneurs here tend to be more grounded, more humble, especially the upper echelon of entrepreneurs. Like, you know, if they were in the US, I just feel like they'd be 10 times harder to reach and 10 times harder to just like relate to. But here I feel like everyone has a bit of a chip on their shoulder. So they tend to give you the benefit of doubt. They tend to help you out, even if you're a young kid, which is amazing to see. We have such a supportive community here and the tech 
scene is just blowing up. It's like the place to be. So super happy that you're here. What was it like coming from Vancouver to coming back to Toronto, reimmersing yourself? Was it challenging to kind of foster those like friendships and community again? Or did you feel it was really natural? No, really, it was natural. Like even when I was in Vancouver, I came to Toronto maybe every two, three months because we had meetings here and my college friends are here. Right. So my college friends are here. They were finishing up school when I moved back. Um, And it was just nice to be able to have not only like a great community of entrepreneurs from a work perspective, but then have like your own personal friends that really get you. In Vancouver, I didn't feel like I had my personal friends there. So that was a bit hard for me to to be able to get through. It's nice that you have that community here. What communities are you part of? Are there any meetups that you kind of regularly go to or other communities outside of that professional realm, maybe Mm -hmm. personal? Not really. I think my basketball group every Sunday (laughs) seems to be like my go-to community. We call it chip with a dip, um, which is our team name. Um, I've been a part of several communities, I think, in the last few years, but I don't think I've been a consistent member at any other than maybe LinkedIn local, but that's mainly because I was also a driver for it. So yeah, not really. I do want to get out more, but it's also like a cost benefit analysis at this point where it's like, oh man, like, I don't know if I can commit to every event. I don't know if I can commit to like some of the extra hours that you should spend if you want to be an active community member. So that's also a trade-off that I keep thinking about. For sure. I think it's all about picking quality over quantity and really like zeroing in on what's going to give you the most value. So that's amazing. That basketball group sounds so much fun. Basketball and group's great. Yeah. And then in terms of your close friends and people who are Mm -hmm. um, super instrumental in your life, how do you choose those people? Are there certain qualities that you look for? Is it more of a feeling? Two things. One is people who just are very honest with me and they don't treat me as anything different, which is great. So my close friends, they roast me. They'll make fun of me, but they'll also uplift me. Like they're they're normal. They're normal with me. And then the second, I think, which is really neat is they're ambitious. So they have their own goals. They're not just slacking off in life. I, I don't know if I could, I could be friends with those types of people, but I don't know if they could be my close friends because I feel like you do pick up on traits and attributes and you do pick up on characteristics from your close friends. And I wouldn't want to pick up characteristics from someone that maybe wasn't as ambitious in life. Absolutely. That's such a key quality to look for, for sure. I feel like I really look for that in my friends as well. And with all the travel that you do, like yeah. you're always on the road, how does that impact how you maintain that personal community? Or is it almost like a bonus that you get to create communities in all these different places? You nailed it. It's, it's more of a bonus. Like, you know, when I was doing the LinkedIn Locals, I was able to host one in Mumbai and Singapore and Cologne, Germany, which was a really good, great, great one. <laughs> um, in New York and Toronto, in Vancouver. It was great just being able to travel and then to be able to go to my network and be like, all right, who's here? Like, I really want to meet you. I want to have like a 10, 15 minute coffee. I want to have an event. I'd love for you to come out. And it's great to be able to then meet people in person because especially the next time that I go home and I post, now there's another level of relatability that I have with my audience, which is great. So my last question for you is, and I'm asking this of everybody on the podcast, what does community mean to you? The online community means more to me than people might think. It was the first time where I got like confidence to speak out on things that I genuinely believed in. Being able to speak out on mental health, for example, is something that I wasn't able to really do because my family, it was hard to have that conversation with them. Friends, you don't want to be a downer, quote unquote. So to be able to like talk about that in a more real way on LinkedIn has been great because it's given me a sense of validation that, all right, the ideas that are in my head aren't weird. Other people have these doubts, they have these fears, they have these considerations that they have to make. In the offline community, it means the world to me. Like, I I don't know if I could go a single day without having that community around me because 
how supported I feel, how loved I feel. It helps me go into like any challenge knowing that people are behind me and that if I don't do well, it's totally fine because they'll still love me. So it's kind of unconditional and it kind of drives me through every day, especially when I have challenges. I love that. I like, I love that word unconditional when it comes to community. It's all about that really like being amongst your people where you're just accepted for who you you are. are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I had such a great time chatting with Swish today, and I hope that you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can connect with Swish on LinkedIn by searching for Swish Goswami or on Instagram at GoSwish. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House, and Twitter at Origins Media. 